A few weeks back, Congress actually did something, passing the Chips and Science Act. Most of you have probably heard of the billions going towards subsidizing domestic manufacturing, but a far less heralded and potentially even more significant part of the bill relating to semiconductors is the creation of the National Semiconductor Technology Center. Joining us to discuss today is Eric Breckenfeld, Director of Technology Policy at the Semiconductor Industry Association. He has a PhD in material science and hung out at DARPA, the Naval Research Laboratory, and Booz Allen in the past. Alongside Eric, we have Hassan Khan, uh, whose doctoral work examined the end of Moore's Law. Welcome to China Talk. Let's do a brief rundown of what's in the CHIPS Act. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you can really break it originally into uh, two categories, and and now as it became CHIPS Plus, or as some of us wanted to call it, chips and salsa, but uh, that that did not end up being the name of the bill. Uh, got maybe into three categories. So originally it was fifty-two billion, uh, and uh, about three quarters of that was manufacturing incentives to get companies to stand up manufacturing capacity here in the U.S. And about one quarter of it was research and development money for standing up new R and D centers uh, that that would be sort of industry collaborating. And then a little bit was added at the very end. This is the and salsa part that was some extra tax provisions and, and some other stuff that added about another 20 billion uh, at the very end. So, um, you know, really manufacturing incentives, tax incentives, and then the stuff we're here to talk about today, R&D. So what's the point of the NSTC? Well, wow. Yeah. Uh, great question. And one that, uh, you know, NIST is in the process of, of trying to answer themselves. If you look at the legislation, it makes it pretty clear about what the point is. And really, it's about helping upscale and transition the earlier stage technologies that the U.S. does a really good job at at uh, innovating within and bringing those up to commercial relevance. So in the same way that DARPA and and other, you know, say DOD um, groups and funding efforts upscale and transition defense technologies, there is no such entity or or funding for those kinds of technologies in the commercial sector. And so NSTC is intended to help do that for microelectronics and semiconductor technologies in, in the broadest sense. So, so with that as the background, let's walk through some of the other players in this space and talk a little bit about what they do and don't do um, before we um, discuss how NSTC is uh, hoping to knit it all together. Um, university labs. What do you do if you're a material science PhD? Yeah, you know, university labs are are the you know the seed corn of of all innovation in the semiconductor industry and and all you know high tech industries. If if you're a material scientist, uh, like like I was during your PhD, you're going to be researching properties of new materials. You're going to be looking into how to make novel devices out of materials that that aren't really necessarily part of industrial processes yet. You know, everything that makes its way into your smartphone was was a basic research project at one point, right? So, th this is really where all the innovation originates. And it's one of the areas that the U.S. already does, uh, you know, best in the world, really. And and, and that's through the university labs and, and through some of the other, you know, early stage laboratories that, that I think we're about to talk about. Hey, Eric, just that, sorry to jump, just out of curiosity, when you were doing your, your PhD in uh, material science, who, who funded it? Yeah. So my PhD was funded, <clears throat> excuse me, by uh, the Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation predominantly. But I also worked with a lot of researchers who were funded by DARPA. So, so you get you get a feel even on like one student's project of the numerous agencies. And I think this is going to come back to the point you're making earlier about how we have numerous agencies across the U.S. government and existing institutions that fund a lot of this research. But there's no clearinghouse today that kind of helps to funnel things like what's relevant into 
commercialization. It's kind of very, it's a little bit of a chaotic process. Very much so. And, you know, this was left historically, I, you know, the, I think, reluctance of the government and of Congress to get involved in the later stages of technology development was, you know, they wanted to leave that to the private sector and then they didn't want to interfere with what they thought was a competitive process. And you know, I think that overabundance of caution has value, but I, I think that, you know, what we've seen especially as technology development in certain sectors, semiconductor especially, gets increasingly difficult, is that there are risks companies can't afford to take, but university labs and government labs aren't prepared to address. And, and you know, this is, this is what they call now the, the valley of death for technology development is this sort of scale up and piloting stage that um, nobody seems to want to address with funding. So where, so on the other side of the spectrum, why aren't corporate labs the ones who are, you know, buying these companies or funding them and yeah. you know, bringing their stuff to fruition. So, I mean, I, to, to some extent, you know, they are. It's, it's really a question of risk tolerance and uh, ability to to explore, you know, um, I, I, disruptive technologies, I guess I would say. So what has happened in the semiconductor industry because of the enormous engineering and scientific challenges associated with making advanced semiconductors is there's been a huge consolidation of companies and, and specialization uh, of companies, right? Where, where you can look and see, you know, how many companies are really manufacturing leading edge chips. It's, a, you can, it's, you know, single digit, you can count on one hand how many companies are able to do that. And so what happens when you get consolidation like that is, yes, they are investing in, in technologies uh, that are early stage and they are maturing those up. You know, uh, extreme ultraviolet is, is one example and, and going down to, you know, five, five nanometer, three nanometer chips. But the trouble with that is that their ability to take big risks is hampered by the fact that they kind of have to bet all of their chips when they when they make a leap. Right. So. Uh, you know, one of the challenges that Intel faced was they didn't go to EUV as quickly as TSMC and Samsung did, and they're paying the price for that. And so, you know, how risk tolerant they can be when you're the only remaining American player. And, you know, you, you, Intel's one example, but you can repeat this for, for other companies as well. It's challenging. So, I mean, they, they do take those risks, but it, increased government funding or really more importantly partnership public private partnership funding can start to find those higher risk but also higher reward technologies and help scale them up to a to a later stage of maturity the i think the exact trend that eric is talking about with uh, the changing structure of corporate r d is actually something uh professor ashish aurora and his co-authors out of duke university have, have noticed is, is is like widespread across industries in the u.s and to, to basically sum it up, um, American firms don't invest in science as much as they used to, in part because of the risks of disruptive innovation have, have become harder. And that, I think, from a policy perspective, makes uh, the importance of having good government funding for basic R&D and leveraging the expertise at our universities and being able to tie that expertise to um to, to the firms that are doing that commercialization work and, and an even more important challenge because we just don't have the Bell Labs or the DuPont Labs or, you know, even the GE Labs that existed in the years past. Um, and, and uh, you know, somewhat ironically, Intel um, was famous in the semiconductor industry for not having a centralized R&D function when it started up. It was Andy uh, uh, Grove, uh, Gordon Moore, and Robert Noyce. Like they were geared around, we're going to focus on manufacturing process technology, not far out R&D. Uh, that had to change. They adjusted that strategy. Um, but 
but at the same level, like they just never went as deep on R&D as say like IBM or AT&T did in years past. Yeah. And I would even say, you know, in some cases that that's, that remains the case. I mean, I, IBM still does more basic research than, than almost, you know, any, any certainly, I mean, I'm from SIA, so I look at our member companies, IBM does the most basic research of, of probably all of our member companies put together. That That's their, you know, they're, they're the ones leading the way in quantum. They're, they're doing an enormous amount of basic research and it's still part of their model, but that's not true across the industry. And, you know, there's another challenge where I think that when you look historically at a lot of the research that came out of places like Bell Labs, you know, if you look at it near AT&T, a lot of the work that came out of Bell Labs helped the ecosystem holistically, but didn't necessarily help the companies standing it up uniquely. And and I that, that was a hard lesson to learn, but, you know, I, I think it becomes hard to justify as a company to support that, but it's a great argument for why public-private partnerships can look to support this and, you know... You know, one of my favorite examples of, of exactly that phenomenon, I've shared this paper with Jordan in the past is, um, uh, there's a, a paper that looked at, um, the invention of copper interconnects. And so if you look at when IBM announced copper interconnects in the late 1990s, their stock price actually had like a major bump, like a one day, like 5% bump because it was a major technological innovation and they had put decades of research into being able to enable, um, uh, uh the damascene process in manufacturing. However, uh, within just a few years, the knowledge of how to implement that had percolated throughout the industry because, you know, folks change jobs and they go across firms, suppliers are facilitating knowledge transfer. And so many people work together in these collaborative institutions that IBM never really got to fully capitalize on their decades of R&D on that specific breakthrough. And I think you, you can come up with other cases like that, too, where, you know, you might spend, you know, take something like FinFET or... EUV lithography, where specific firms might have invested tons of time to get the technology to where it's close to commercialization or even to commercialization, but then your competitors catch up and it's hard to justify that. It's hard to say to an executive, we got the proper ROI on the billions we spent on this effort. Yeah, it's the the, the classic saying is uh, nobody wants to be the first person to demonstrate a technology. Everybody wants to be the second, but say that they're the first. Right. That's the real that's the, <laughs> the, the sweet spot is where you want to be. And, you know, I think the greatest challenge, even if you put aside, you know, people changing jobs, which absolutely happens in an actual, um, you know, diffusion of knowledge, just the general knowledge that a technology can be achieved or is promising sometimes is all it takes. You know, even if th there was no information diffusion to to another company, but to know that IBM was able to master copper interconnects to know that that's promising and to say, okay, then yeah, we're going to push forward on this can, can sometimes be all that it takes. You certainly saw that with, you know, for example, the development of nuclear fission, as soon as it was identified as, as promising and possible and then demonstrated other countries caught up pretty quickly, uh, you know, w without necessarily needing to only steal knowledge, there was some of that going on too, but I mean, just showing it was possible was often enough. Okay. So we, so we talked a little bit about uh, the challenges, uh, how the, the current system isn't really getting you where you want to go. Um, what is the like, what is, let, let's come back to the vision for the NSTC and maybe before we start getting into the specifics, like what is like, what is like the most beautiful story you can tell about it looking back from 2040? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the vision for the NSTC right now only lives in the legislation and it's relatively broad. Um, I, I, I can share what, and actually I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say here that, um, you know, SIA is about to release a document that, that I've been helping work on for the past several months that kind of lays out, 
um, NSTC vision, packaging vision, workforce vision, and, and how that all kind of comes together from. There have been a couple of these papers that have come out over the last nine months. Um, this is intended to be sort of a holistic kind of, um, I don't know, industry consensus type document. Um, so I'll kind of go off of what's laid out in that because what's in the legislation is is vague and, and leaves a lot of authority to NIST and commerce. Um, so painting a picture from 2040, I would say that, you know, there are lots of technologies right now that places like SRC, that, that you know, universities, that government labs like Sandia have demonstrated at the device level or even at the very early prototype stages. And these are new computing paradigms. These are new architectures, new materials in some cases. These are things like, um, you know, spintronics, neuromorphic architectures, things that, that completely change the, the medium of the computing or the, the um, approach of, of the computing away from digital or, or away from uh, CMOS and access, you know, 1,000x, 10,000x more energy efficient compute paradigms. Those are at the device level. By 2040, we can look back and in a rosy scenario, we can say, look, we took these from a device demonstration and we made them mainstream parts of our consumer devices, of our data centers. We have access to, uh, you know, what, what will probably be heterogeneous systems that include conventional one nanometer, maybe not much smaller than that chips paired with quantum computing modules paired with neuromorphic modules that perform, you know, artificial intelligence at, at a hundred thousand times the efficiency, you know, in, in terms of energy per computation that we can do today, things like that. I, I think that's what we can look back on. It'll, it, they'll live in our edge devices. They will live in our servers. And it, it's a level of computation access that I, I think is even hard to envision today. So, Eric, maybe to give some context on this, could you help summarize like that vision you're describing all these new approaches, how do they compare in terms of the advances that we've been, you know, that we've been making historically? Because I think everyone understands semiconductors have been on this like long-term trajectory with Moore's law where we've seen massive computing increases, but what you're describing is like kind of entering a different paradigm entirely, right? So how, how yeah. should like, how, how would that, what would that mean for someone who's seen, oh, you know, my iPhone from 10 years ago is so much less capable than my iPhone today. What would that mean to, for the, you know, whatever that computing device is in 2030, 2040? Yeah. So, and there's sort of two questions baked in there. So I'll answer one, one after the other. So the first is, you know, what, what is the journey of silicon been and and what has driven that and and what's and how are we entering a new paradigm in in from that perspective and i wonder you know you've you've sort of thoroughly studied the the end or looming end or already ended depending on how you look at it moore's law so you know please feel free to to, to hop in with any corrections or insights um but you know the adoption and and scaling of silicon as the substrate upon which all computing basically lives was not done because it was the best performing device. It was done because it was the most scalable material that performed logic functions. We we knew at the time germanium was was you know had superior properties to silicon from many perspectives, but had a lot of downsides that made it not as scalable. And the you know to to put a little bit of a material science spin on it, the fact that silicon so easily grows a native oxide that has a very controllable thickness and that silicon has favorable chemical etching properties 
makes it easy to scale up and make lots of complex devices and, and makes it parallel with lithography. And the fact that it's so um, relatively easy to purify, you know, its abundance is valuable too, but the fact that it's relatively easy to purify and, and make these ultra pure devices out of, all of those put together make it compatible with industrialization and scale up and mechanization and all of these things. So that's what drove silicon as a substrate. Not because it was the best. We, we knew there were better materials all along, but none of them were as scalable. And the name of the game was downsizing, lateral downsizing of features. No other improvement was as powerful as Moore's Law. So going to better materials, who cares? Because if I wait two years, they're gonna, the devices are going to be better than any new material that I could try to you know, bootstrap from, from, from nothing, right? And so we, we rode that scaling trend for, let's say, 70 years. And, and frankly, it, it's, it's a miracle. To, to ride a, an exponential scaling trend for 70 years is, has never been done in any, any industry or technology anywhere else. So, you know, in, in, in a sense, there, there's a lamentation about the end of Moore's Law. I, I would look at it as a miracle of a 70-year exponential scaling trend. And, and to, to build on that, I think I agree it's a miracle. We sometimes get too caught up in, oh, it's ending. But but I would also say, frankly, it's an opportunity for uh, scientists and engineers to do what they do best, which is like find solutions to new problems. Because the, the flip side, exactly what you talked about is once everyone bought into silicon, everyone bought into silicon, which meant we didn't look outside that paradigm because to your point, it just didn't make sense. Even if you had a you know short-term boost, a few years from now, you were not going to have, you, you were, that wasn't going to be a sustainable advantage given the power of the ecosystem. And I think that comes back to maybe the second part of this, which is we know where we are today with silicon integrated circuits in terms of the, the maturity of that technology paradigm. And, and that's pro probably the flip of that is that's the opportunity of uh, investing in basic research at scale in alternate computing paradigms where it is kind of a chance for for scientists and engineers to go back to the drawing board and say, well, what what if we had to like hand pick a new computing paradigm, give it everything we've learned in the last 70 years about computing, what would we want it to be capable of? And, yeah, and that's exactly the new paradigm. That, that, that's exactly right is, you know, okay, so now let's not worry about Right, right up front, what's the most scalable? We already rode scaling until it was dead or is about to die or however you want to we say might it. Have, we might have a little bit more to do. And I, I think what's, there's, what's, some, there's some juice left. There's some juice left. And I think what, uh, candidly, mm. you know, and it's not the focus, that, but we have seen some very impressive uh, engineering feats, right? Like the, the, the emergence of uh, specialized uh, uh, processors, right? Like that's something that only made sense in the last, I mean, it made sense previously. We had them. But it really changed gears in the last decade when firms realized, oh, I don't necessarily have to run every chip at the latest node. I can get a lot of advances from just doing more uh, uh, functional design. And so, you know, you get a lot of breakthroughs in terms of capability that way. But I think to your point, we know that the silicon scaling uh, uh, trend is nearing its end, at its end, on its last lifeline. And that's where that opportunity comes. And, and you know... Uh a key part of, of using silicon, at least in the way that we do now also, ha has a baked-in assumption about architecture, which is that processing lives, oh, let me get on camera, processing lives here, memory lives here, for the most part. And then they have a, you know, they, they, they have a bus that they talk to each other through. And, and you can play some clever architecture tricks, but as long as you're using the same von Neumann architecture, you're, that, that data bus is going to be 
a limitation, especially at the most advanced nodes, and especially for things like, you know, AI and machine learning and, and these sorts of applications. And, and that's, by the way, where, yes, at the design level, there have actually been great innovations uh, to, to squeeze a little bit more juice out of. And, and by the way, I don't think we're close to the end of, of design innovations as, as a way to squeeze more out of this. I mean, I, I think that can easily get us through the next decade or so, at least, uh, j just on the design side, even if we don't have access to many more nodes beyond, let's say, the next next. But I digress. Um, I want to go back to this. The, 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 you raised, you listed off a whole host of technologies, right? That I think, if, you know, if, and maybe we get into this, but it sounds like the way the legislation is written, NIST and Commerce have some freedom to say, here's how we're going to structure it. Here's how we're going to fund it. But the industry already, because they've been doing this work in, at a smaller scale for, for decades, and in fact, going back to our conversation on Central Labs, uh, you can go back to the IBM labs, the uh, TI labs from the 80s. They were looking at all these alternatives. And some of those research threads have, have sort of persisted um, and evolved into things. You know, some of the technologies that Eric listed off, like Spintronics, magnetic tunnel junctions, um, you know, 2D uh, transistor technologies, um, obviously graphene-based technologies. Uh, and now I think there's a whole host of opportunities from a technological and scientific perspective in front of us. And the question is, how do we turn them into viable technologies? And, and that's maybe the role that NSTC can play in sort of helping that ask that question and bridge the, the research community with the technology community. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I wasn't going to remember to bring it around to the question. So yes, exactly. That, that, that's exactly right. And, and by the way, um, you know, when you look at vision, for, for how NSTC is, is meant to be structured or, or where the, I don't know, the idea for doing it. You know, a, a lot of the citations in, in the early legislature, uh, uh, legislation language rather from like two years ago, you know, CHIPS has been kicked around for a little while now. And so a lot of this and, and the same thing with, with discussions around Endless Frontiers was looking at DARPA as a model for, for how technologies get scaled up. And there, there are, I think, misconceptions sometimes about how to do that. So, so you know, DARPA does things in a project-based fashion. And I think many people look at that and they think, oh, that's the secret sauce that lets DARPA scale up technologies. That is one ingredient, but the secret sauce that lets DARPA scale up technologies is that they have a customer. They know who their customer is, and it's the Department of Defense. And they know what that customer wants, and they know that that customer is not cost sensitive. They, and in fact, the DOD may only buy 10, 100 devices per year, but they're willing to pay. If they have to pay $10,000 per device, that's fine. Well, that, I mean, that's not going to work if you're selling consumer devices. The consumer is highly cost sensitive, wants to buy a million units a year. And so the, the way you scale up technology has to be a, a, approached differently. But I, I think a critical part of that is, you know, DARPA does this process where they, they go into this body of earlier stage research. They identify some need. That need is usually set by DOD or the intelligence community. And then they help bridge those and help scale up those technologies. Now, DARPA has a lot a lot more tools at their disposal than say the department of energy or the nsf because again they have a customer and they have all these funding mechanisms that go after darpa and i think that's the spot that nstc goes and helps uh serve not only helping scale things up but also helping communicate with who are the customers for these technologies and in some cases it's consumers but in many cases it's going to be those companies that are are either members of sia or are you know google or apple or you know other chip designing companies out there you know, interfacing with those companies and, and figuring out what their sort of value propositions and, and, and what helps, you know, their R&D is going to be a critical part of NSTC as well. Because if the companies don't have buy-in, 
these technologies will go sit on a, sel- a shelf somewhere. What, you, you know, you scale them up, no one wants them, they go on a shelf. You know, I'll, I'll tell a, maybe Jordan, I've mentioned this to you in the past, but um, previously, uh, Eric, I, when I was doing my doctoral work, I was, I was working with the Nano Electronics Research Initiative, um, which is an SRC consortia that was exactly in a similar research area, basically looking at what might come what, out. What's an SRC? Uh, sorry, the SRC is the Semiconductor Research Corporation. It is a research consortia that started in the 1980s where firms collectively fund university research. Um, we can talk about that, but but they had a specific program called the NRI, the Nano Electronics Research Initiative, that was fairly modestly funded, only about $20 million a year. Um, but its goal was to basically identify some of the exact technologies that we listed off earlier that could potentially replace silicon CMOS one day. Anyway, I bring all this up to say, one day at one of their sessions, they had a professor who was kind of, they had like a, a portion where they were funding a major part of the program. Then they were also giving out smaller grants to professors who related or doing, you know, interesting scientific work. And this professor comes and said, hey, you know, I know you're looking for the next transistor. I've got your solution. And so he starts to list off all these, these, these amazing operating characteristics. It's like super fast switching speed, super low uh, energy consumption per Per, trans, uh, per switch, right? And so, you know, it's very exciting because that's exactly, you want something that switches fast and uses low energy while doing it because that's how you get super fast computing without uh, massive energy use. And so the industry sort of pricks up and says, first question, what operating temperature is this device at? And the professor is beaming and he says, oh yeah, 77K, it's liquid nitrogen cooled, right? And so everyone in the industry who's sitting there is like, how do I put that in a laptop? How do I, right? Yeah, they're like, oh, all right. right. And so they okay, immediately fine. stop paying attention. But this goes Gee exactly you. to your point about customers, which is you have all sorts of brilliant scientists working on phenomenal things, but they don't have that, you know, they're working on, you know, at the, at the molecular level, they're working on very cool breakthroughs, but they lose sight of like, the point is to put it in a device that a customer can use. Yeah. And if your boundary condition is, I need to cool it with liquid nitrogen, well, none of us are going to use it at home because we're not going to have liquid nitrogen containers around all of our laptops and cell phones and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it could maybe go in a server somewhere, maybe if there was a great need. But you'll see the same thing or or it'll be, oh, but it doesn't handle humidity very well. Like, okay, well, then it probably is a no-go. Uh, it, it, it's challenges like that. And by the way, it's it's challenges like that that made silicon rise to the top, right? Is because it didn't have any of those it worked fine at elevated temperatures, not, you know, forget liquid nitrogen, but even up to 100 C, it could still work okay. And, you know, sometimes CPUs will right. hit those those temperatures. And, but but I think <laughs> this goes to your comment on, it It sounds like one of the clearest value propositions for your vision of the NSTC is that it helps the research community understand customer needs. And here we're not, we're defining the customer in in a broad sense, not just include like, you know, you and I, when we go buy gizmos and gadgets, but like, you know, technology, like firms who are customers of new technologies. Yeah. And and that is for the most part, by the way, what I mean when I say customer, I I don't generally mean consumer. I I mean, yeah, the companies, you know, they, they will have products that will have consumers as a customer, but they are the customer of the technology. And, and yeah, you know, what their needs are and, and what they could see themselves using. And, you know, I'll also say, you know, we, we've been saying NSTC a lot and we'll, we'll probably get over to packaging. But, um, you know, I really see NSTC, by the way, as more of a 10 to 20 year time frame 
technology innovation kind of uh, bridge maker. And the packaging side is where I think the next three to 10 years of, of um, performance improvements are, are really going to come out of. Let's talk a little bit about the NSTC's antecedents. Um, you mentioned uh, SRC. What are, less, what are lessons from Semitech? Uh, take it away, YouTube. Yeah, uh, so so I'll, I'll jump to Semitech first. Um, you know, Semitech was was created to specifically to address the fact that the Japanese electronics industry had, had really overtaken the U.S. And um, I'll, I'll spare all the geopolitical concerns at the time, but but basically, you know, there was an idea that U.S. semiconductor manufacturing needed to improve, and and specifically, it needed to drastically reduce uh, manufacturing defects. I mean, that that was there were other parts of it, but that that was one of the biggest you know, thrusts is manufacturing technology to do improve. And so the, the strategy of Semitech was to say, you know, let's bring together companies in a pre-competitive way. Let's bring together uh, some, uh, you know, U.S. agencies. Let's bring together DARPA. Let's bring together Sandia National Labs. And let's look at manufacturing technology research pre-competitive and tackle this problem together. So because we all agree that that we want the U.S. to be more competitive. And, and you know, that... You know, as short as possible of description, that's basically what Semitech sought to do. Now, in the very beginning, they were formed with sort of this broad goal, but they didn't really know how to go about achieving it. And they they had, a, a, you know, probably a year's worth of intense workshops and meetings and, you know, convening all of the voices from the companies and, you know, government stakeholders as well to identify a, a true roadmap of what they wanted to do. And that set a unifying vision for how to proceed. And so, you know, from that perspective, they they had a clear goal, at least after the first year, they had a very clear goal and they moved towards it. And, um, you know, I think it's hard to say Semitech kind of died. I, I would say Semitech kind of won and then absent a very clear goal, you know, didn't necessarily have have well, a purpose I think, anymore. Um, you know, the way I think we summarized it was uh, Semitech was created with the explicit purpose of overtaking Japanese competition in the 1990s. It was very clear that the United States uh, achieved that goal with the assistance of Semitech, but also candidly with uh, the way the industry innovated, right? The rise of fabulous firms, their ability to leverage foundry partners, um, their ability to specialize in product portfolios to capture nascent markets. All of those things kind of combined together to deliver that win. I mean, then we saw that in the early 2010s, like, you know, people were asking like, well, you know, Semitech kind of served its purpose in one. And I think this brings exactly to your question, Jordan, like we have a different challenge in front of us now for the U.S. semiconductor industry. And probably, Eric, you can talk about like, hey, the challenge has changed. So the institutional response has to change. And and maybe that's why we need something like NSTC. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll say a few things. One is that the NSTC funding is a lot bigger than what Semitech's funding was at, at the beginning. Um the challenges are a lot bigger, but we also have more weapons to bring to bear, right? At, at that point, you know, so so depending on on how commerce uh, approaches this, but I mean, if the a big part of what chips is supposed to be is competitiveness concerns about China, the U.S. and its uh, you know semiconductor supply chain partners go far beyond U.S. shores, and and that wasn't as much the case in the '80s, and now you know. We, we have IMEC, we have ASML, we, we have partnerships with TSMC. A lot of American firms depend on that. We have a much greater dominance in things like design tools. So uh, the challenge is larger, 
But I think the U.S. has has far more tools to bring to the fight now than they did back in the 1980s. So, so, so that's what I'll first I think say. you so I think you touch on something that I feel very strongly about, which is there's been in the last like few years sort of coinciding with the semiconductor shortage, which I think which I've been glad this this conversation has steered clear of because the NSTC solves a very different problem than that shortage. But as a consequence of that shortage, you saw a lot of policymakers kind of lump technology leadership and the shortage all into one discussion when I think everyone here agrees they're they're dif- they're related in that the industry shares those problems, but they, they have different root causes and different solutions. Um, but there's been this creeping conversation around like almost like it's an autarky, right? Like we want our semiconductors only made here. And I think it's refreshing to have actually our approach as the United States, our, our competitive advantage is that we are able to link a global value chain and then our institutions will be best served on the global value chain, whether that includes suppliers from Europe or Asia or even manufacturers from those countries are tied into those institutions um, and are leveraging our research expertise. Yeah, and and you know, I, I think that it, it has never at least been the advocacy of, of uh, SIA, and I, this is, you know, I'll, I'll say, as Eric, I agree with this as well, uh, to, to put up walls around the U.S. and say, do everything here. Even if we wanted to do that, which I don't necessarily think it's something worth wanting to do, we, we simply don't have the workforce. I mean, th- no victory that, that included putting up walls and doing everything here would be a victory worth having. It would mean falling behind because the rest of the world isn't going to stop working on it just because we say we want to do everything here. And I guarantee that even if we succeed in some areas, maybe our design tools are great, we're going to fall behind in others. And and so, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that the strength of the U.S. is that we can we can bring together all of the parts of the supply chain who want to participate in a free and open global market. And we can say, look, you know, we're, we're not saying that we have to be the best at every single part. Now, there's value in a robust supply chain. OK, you know, maybe between you and me, Taiwan gets a lot of earthquakes. All right. <laughs> maybe there's value in spreading it out. I've heard, a bit. I've heard okay, they've fine. got some water shortages. But, yeah. And potentially some unfriendly neighbors, too. So I've I've heard some rumors about some some nearby neighbors who, yeah. who may have a bone to pick. Um, but, you know, so. I, I see that as, as as a big strength of the U.S. now, and and I also think that there's an opportunity because so many of the nations that participate in the supply chain at, at a very high value level are putting money on the table. It's not just actually we're late to the game. Most of them have put money up before before the U.S. has, and so I, I think there's a great opportunity to to make a holistic investment in the supply chain, and. I think coordination is a is a necessary part of the next step because there is a risk of over-investing in certain parts of the supply chain and having bottlenecks in others. And, and that can actually be pretty disruptive. And so, I mean, I think that, yeah, the, the U.S. really going to taking a, a, a leadership or a joint leadership role in the supply chain and, and using it as a negotiation stage to bring everyone to the table who wants to play fair is is one of the greatest strengths that, that the U.S. has access to right now. Now, that's different from R&D and innovation leadership. They're, they're both important. They just take place over different timescales, right? So the, the near term, and, and this is what I get asked this question all the time of like, how is CHIPS going to fix the shortage? Well, the shortage happened in 2021. The CHIPS Act can't fix that. That that already happened. That's baked in. So we're, you know, we're addressing the next shortage and we're also addressing a, a risk of losing 
U.S. leadership in microelectronics, right? Those are the two things we're addressing. And so, you know, the, the manufacturing incentives and these sorts of things, that's more of a short to medium term play. NSTC and packaging, that's a longer term play. And I, I think that, um, you know, no, nobody cares who has access to 45 nanometer chips these days. Someday that will be seven nanometers, right? Some, someday no one will care who has seven. And our goal and, and part of what NSTC helps achieve is to be the owners or part owners of the new technology that we don't want anybody to have and make sure that China's not the one who, who owns and whatever it's going to be. You know, we talked about some promising technologies, but, you know, quantum, of course, as well is, is, is a contender in, in the ring for something that, you know, we want to have leadership in. And, and so that's what NSTC helps with. But that will, by the way, only make sense in the context, just like the supply chain side. We will need to partner research internationally. Right. I mean, there, there and, and we talked a bit about about other players, you know, Semitech, SRC. I think you can't ignore international players as well, like IMEC, like Fraunhofer, like CEA Letty, like, I mean, uh, uh, Korea and Taiwan have their own contributors. I, I think those will need to be, you know, brought into the fold in a sense as well, um, be, because spending spending money to duplicate research. Um, Obviously, NIST and Commerce have have leeway, given the way the legislation is written to structure the NSTC. Um, are, does, does, does SIA, do you guys like have recommendations for how you see that structure being able to best leverage this global research ecosystem? Um, and, and probably the global research ecosystem of, let's be candid, our allies. Yeah, to, to an extent, yes. So, so some of it was discussed. There was a, uh, request for information put out by the Department of Commerce back in March. So SIA put out a response to that. And, and some of the questions were about international collaboration and cooperation. Um, and so we, we had some formal opinions put out in that. And then in this document that we'll soon be publishing or, or may, maybe have published by the time this podcast comes out, I, I don't actually know what the timeline on this is. Uh, anyways, I think it'll be September, early September-ish. Um, we'll, we'll contain some of those as well, but I'll broadly say, you know, I see many of those organizations, IMEC especially, but, but others as well as important feeder organizations for technologies that NSDC should be assisting with scale up. And when I've spoken to the IMEC folks, you know, they're, they're very excited about the possibility of having an organization with, with adequate funding come in at that later piloting and prototyping stage and helping maybe be the final piece of the puzzle for scaling up technologies that, that they help do R&D in. And IMEC is just one example. There are others as well. But um, I, I don't think that that valley of depth is addressed adequately anywhere within the sort of whatever we can say global friendly can you research network. And we talked a little bit about here's, you know, the, the basic science that's done at universities, right? They're going to focus on materials, et cetera, et cetera. But can you maybe talk specifically about like the value of prototyping services at, at something like NSTC and why that's something that's missing today, right? Because we talked about that, you know, if you're coming in fresh to this, right? And you're not like a semiconductor nerd, you might hear all these acronyms that are being thrown out. You'd hear DARPA's doing all this stuff, NSF's doing all this stuff, the, the French, the Belgians, they're doing all this stuff. The Koreans are doing all this stuff. Why do we need another one? Like, what is the specific gap that it's filling despite the billions in research funding globally? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, it's an excellent question. And, and um, I, I do think that it, it becomes very easy to lose track of everything that's going on and to ask ourselves, um, are we really doing something that's not already covered by someone, right? Um, and so, yeah, you know, let, let's look at a technology as it makes its way up from, an, from academia up to maybe someday a company, right? So we're going to start by 
you know, at, at a materials or even a physics level, maybe some new material, some new structure, something like that, that performs some interesting function. Maybe it's, it's a logic gate that operates at 77 Kelvin and, and is really energy efficient. So I'm going to be asking myself all sorts of questions, right? Can I, how can I figure out how to operate something like this at a higher temperature? Can I get this up to room temperature, blah, 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 right? These are material science questions that are going to be asked. So someday I answer all those questions. I'm going to want to turn this material into a device that I can, you know, flip a logic one time to prove that the device can be made. I'm going to do that in a, in a university setting using equipment that's very small scale is, is not even necessarily good at making one device at a time. I need the student to, to draw the lithography, right. Uh, uh masks himself in a, in a, you know, in, in CAD or something like that. Right. But I'm going to make one device. Okay. So that's, that's still at the very early stage R and D level, but I've proven that a device works. So what I'm going to want to do next is I'm going to want to go to a, you know, scale at this point, I don't want to make it sound too simple, but it becomes degrees of scale up. So now I want to make many of those devices and, and perform a function with them and prove, you know, can I make something that counts? Can I make something that can add two numbers together? Right. But oftentimes this is going to be still in a research setting. Eventually I'm going to want to take that material and those designs and use equipment that is similar to the equipment that's used in the industry and prove that I can actually make it with real ish equipment. Maybe still only a few devices, but prove that I can actually make it with commercial lithography equipment. I don't need some special, special sauce that I can, yeah, I can easily access in my you know, academic lab, but you'd never be allowed to use it. I, I need whatever gamma radiation from my reactor to make right. it work. Okay. Well, that's never going to right stuff like that. So that, that, that's the first thing then. And, and by the way, what I'm saying right now is already handled by academia, places like IMEC. I, IMEC can let you start to go in and use real ish equipment in a setting that is almost like what it is at a, at a real fab. And, and that's really the value that, that IMEC brings, but it's still at a basic resource level. They help people test out materials. Can, you know, I want to see if my materials are compatible. Mm -hmm with the equipment that they use. Still at a basic research stage. What I want to do next is say, okay, now can I make a full, you know, can I make a chip? Can I, can I make a full logic chip that, that can, you know, it's not going to be cutting edge, but can I make an actual working full product? That is the prototype. That is, you know, can I use industrial equipment to make one chip? And maybe what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to make a thousand chips and one of them is going to work. And I'm going to say, Aha, it can be done, but it, it has less than 1% yields, but that's okay. That's the prototyping step. And some of that is accessible today, but it would be nice if there was more. So, so I can do some of that at IMEC. Um, Sandia National Labs has some ability to do that sort of manufacturing, but it's very, very low volume. Now, let's say you're a startup and you went through that process and you've, you've proven that you can make it. Maybe you've even proven that like I can actually make, if I, if I try to make... 10 devices, eight of them come out working. Great. Okay. So my next step, I want to make a thousand devices. That's hard. It's hard to get access to that because TSMC wants you to make 10,000 devices per month, a million devices per month. They don't want to help you make they're, they're, you know, TSMC, Intel, these places, there, there are yep. ways to access it, but it's limited. And so, and iMac doesn't offer that scale as well. And this is the jump from prototyping to piloting. And by the way, if you can't make that jump, you don't have a product because who, nobody cares if you make, try to make 10 devices and eight of them come out good. That doesn't matter. I, I need to be able to make 10,000 of these, a hundred thousand of these, but making that jump and, and working out the engineering challenges and the science challenges of making that jump 
is hard to access. And so that, that, that is a big area that NSTC can help provide value to is can I fill that intermediate scale up, what we call piloting, um, in a real enough setting that I can go to someone like TSMC and say, guys, trust me, I have all of this data from running it at a thousand wafers or a thousand uh, devices rather in equipment that's like the equipment you guys have. If we try to make a hundred thousand, it will work and we will have devices and I will be able to pay you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Because, yeah. of course, and TSM's just got to get I paid. think sort of unsaid in, in your, I think that, 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 that walkthrough was very helpful, but sort of unsaid was, you could imagine how valuable this is for a startup based out of the U.S. where until they can prove to a larger foundry that they have a viable technology, they can't get a slot in their production line. And then the flip of that is that they can't go to their customers to say, I'll have a product to sell you because no one's going to make it for me, right? If I'm, if death, yeah. it's one of the examples of where we get into this valley of death where if I'm an innovative startup and I have this new technology and I can never prove that it's manufacturable, then I can never get it to manufacture. And then I can't prove to my customers that I'll have something to sell them. And then I'm stuck with this question of like, how do I get that without building a $20 billion fab, which no one's going to give me VC money for uh, to build a $20 billion fab rightfully. Yeah, a absolutely. And, and there's, there's another part of that challenge as well, which is um, let's even say TSMC says, okay, sure. We, they they have these things called multi-project wafer runs where a bunch of small people can band together. Okay. So they say, sure, you can join a, a multi-project wafer run. We'll let you run a thousand of your devices. That's fine. And you say, okay, can you give me a little bit of engineering help? I don't know your process flow perfectly because it's proprietary. Can you give me a little bit of engineering help? Here's my design. What kind of small tweaks do I need to make to it to make sure that it'll actually work when you go to make it? TSMC is like, oh no, get out of here. No, we offer that service to people who buy a million devices a month, not a thousand. And so this is another area where NSTC can help is they can bring aboard, especially if places like, in, you know, any of the foundry owners, if, if, if TSMC or Intel, Global Foundries, these other places can help participate and share some of their engineering knowledge in a pre-competitive way, they can start to get those designs and those early stage technologies up to a point where I don't need to go to TSMC and say, help me figure out the engineering of this from almost scratch, I can say, I've gone through NSTC, I've gone through your slightly not proprietary engineering steps that you gave to them. So I have a pretty good idea that it will work in your manufacturing. Maybe you need to make a few tweaks, but it takes the load off of those foundry engineers whose time is worth an insane amount of money and, and you know, gives you a better so glide. There's an interesting um, analog that I just, as you were walking through this, that I realized 
If you go back to Semitech, when Semitech was trying to figure out what they were going to collaborate on, they were thinking, how can we, of all these manufacturers, come together to make the, like, uh, make a competitive next process node technology, right? And there was a lot of discussion there on like who would share what, but the focus there was as manufacturers, how can we share pre-competitive knowledge to optimize our collective process capabilities? What we're now talking about at the NSTC is how can we share pre-competitive foundry uh, technology and processes so that designers and technologists can invent entirely new technology. So it's taking a similar approach to knowledge sharing, but because the value chain has evolved from we have 20 leading edge manufacturers to three and just a handful of foundries, like the institution's approach has also evolved alongside of it. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's actually, that, that's a very, um, a, a very good way of looking at it. I, I would say NSCC does still include innovations in the manufacturing. But it, but it has, it, it is, yes, it has moved beyond that. So, you know, Semitech was this core of manufacturing technology. I think NSTC includes that, but then it adds this shell around it of other stuff, design. And, and you're right. I mean, the design value chain has exploded so much since the 90s. It, you know, it, it, it is, um, I, I think it's leaving money on the table to, to only go after those manufacturing technologies and, and leave design outside of it. And uh, at least hopefully, and, and certainly this is contained within the, the SIA recommendations for, for NIST, um, NSTC needs to help address, you know, how do we bring value to, to designers? And if you want to help the startup community, by the way, most startups are on the design side. How does this vision go back to the goal that we have now of, you know, we, we're, we're, we're talking about the NSTC in the context of how do we maintain our competitiveness with like China? So how do we, what we just walked into the value of the NSTC, like how does it help, uh, the U.S., our startups, and, you know, the, the global value chain that we just talked about compete against, uh, uh, you know, uh, China specifically? Yeah, I, I think that, well, I mean, so, so first of all, um, helping, helping startups find glide paths to scaling up and helping them find customers helps them stay in the U.S. Because oftentimes when startups get to a certain point of maturity that nobody wants to support them anymore because... And, and, and another thing is that every scale of technology development gets exponentially more expensive. And so R&D is not as expensive as piloting costs, you know, 20 times more than prototyping. And so you, you, you often get to a point of startups where they could find enough funding to get to a certain point, but the next stage they need 10 times as much funding and there's no one to fill that gap. Well, you know who fills that gap often is China. And, and they come in and they fund. They will fund U.S. startups. They will acquire the IP. So providing a glide path to scale up and, and increased funding and, and, you know, access to customers and trust that they can manufacture is enormously beneficial to keeping those companies and that innovation in the U.S. and not have it go to China. And, you know, I think in a lot of cases, China also makes bad bets because they broadly invest in startups. And I don't know if they always do proper vetting, but it does lead to IP that was incubated in, in U.S. universities that went through. U.S. venture capital funding sometimes receive government money and then hit a point where they couldn't go forward anymore in the U.S. And it's a shame that China is the one who wants to step in at that point. This story, candidly, I was not aware that China has stepped in in late stage to, to fund, right? I know, and I think Jordan has covered this, that like China has thrown tons of money 
into semiconductors. It's not always been very well vetted. And, and I think he, he's well-versed in some of the drama around uh, Chinese public funding of semiconductor firms that he could maybe uh, tell us about. But this specific story essentially of the U.S. losing its, it, I mean, I, I can't imagine a more dangerous scenario for us, honestly, if we do all the hard work in getting the technology uh, vetted, invented, and then China is the one that commercializes it because they, they see the opportunity and we can't capitalize on it. I don't know. I've had like three or four conversations with, with sort of early medium stage folks who've gotten lots of offers that they've had to turn away. But like at a certain point, you know, you've got folks on your cap table who would like, like to get some money back if it doesn't work out. Um, Eric, you probably have more anecdotes um, than I do. Oh, well, I just I, I come from an from a materials and, and especially a nanomaterials background. And this was the story of nanomaterial startups from the early to mid 2000s was, you know, yeah, I mean, they they turned down many offers. But look, they got over over five years, they got 15 offers. They turned down 14 of them. But uh, eventually they got to get their money out. And and who can who can really blame them? They, they they you know, they would often turn down double digit offers to try to stay in the U.S. still looking for funding. And eventually they're like, there's not. The funding is dried up and, and no one wants to take hard technology, meaning like not not like software and apps, right? You know, nanomaterials, semiconductors. It, it is not always an attractive place for venture capital to look. It, it has a lot more risks. It has a lot more uh, capital costs often. The big what, what worries me is, is if I've always thought our competitive advantage is our dynamism and obviously our re research ecosystem. And so if we don't if we don't take full advantage of it by seeing those through to commercialization, then that that's that's a, you you know a lot of the story on semiconductors today is about how China has been subsidizing production, right, to get lower cost chips, and I think that is certainly a story, and it'll probably continue to be a story because at the lagging edge, China will probably continue to be the lowest place to make chips, and so a lot of that production might end up there. But if you are talking about long term competitiveness the story of, hey, some of our best firms end up moving to China or taking on Chinese investors because they can't continue operating here. That's the one that kind of keeps me awake at night because that means our tech, we're going to, that's how we lose our technology lead. Because the way we maintain the technology lead is to continue innovate at the frontier and to make sure that these new designs and processes, et cetera, can hit scale. But if we're not the ones doing it, that's how they chip away at the lead even faster. And there, there are all sorts of advantages to staying in the U.S. if you can. I mean, for the most part, they don't want to um, deal with all of the extra stuff that comes with taking Chinese money. But, you know, if, if there's no U.S. funding at all, and that's, by the way, exactly where I see why it's critical to help them at that piloting stage to, to you know, to, to hit escape velocity, right? And, 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 and actually, you know, hit orbit and then be self-sustaining. And, um, you know, I, I, the, my personal opinion not a China expert. Um, I don't care what metrics say about how many papers, academic papers get published. China is nowhere close to the U.S. in early stage innovation. But if they can acquire technologies at a critical stage and, and essentially use our innovation stream for their own benefit, I mean, that's that's a huge risk that that's we're, we're paying for their R&D. And and, you know, there are workforce parts about that as well, where, where we turn away a lot of PhD students who, who get PhDs here and then we send them off. You know, I have lots of friends from when I was in grad school, probably similar case for you. Uh, they would go into OPT, right? Because they were doing STEM. So they would go into OPT. They'd have a couple of years to do OPT, but then that would finish. And then there's this scramble. There was a constant scramble to just be able to stay in the US. And I, I think 
it's aside from this whole conversation on institutions, but uh, I think the lowest hanging fruit we have is to just clear that hurdle, keep the smart people who come here to study in the U.S. Uh, and, and that's how we maintain our dynamism in a way that no other com com uh, country can compete with. It, yeah, leverages are are one of our greatest advantages is that, I mean, our university and, and basic research system is second to none. Um, we can go into why that might be. It, it, it's a lot of, I think, historical accidents, but oh, well, I mean, it, that that's our one of our greatest strengths. And and yeah, I mean, it, certainly the semiconductor industry has borrowed heavily from that. I mean, you, you just look at how yeah. many huge companies have come out of like professors from Stanford, right? And and so um, yeah. Can, anyways, I, we we may have lost the thread on NSTC at this point. Eric, who, who runs? Who's going to run this? So I think that you what you need to do first of all is assemble a steering committee. Steering committee will need to include a n number of voices from industry. Probably will need to be mostly industry led, and then we'll also include um, the voices from mission agencies who have special needs. You know, Department of Energy, Department of Defense, as well. Um, and you know it's it's intended to be a public private partnership but i think it really needs to be industry led because if it doesn't have industry buy in as i said earlier you know technologies that get scaled up through nstc have to have somewhere to go and industry is the customer of this process and they are the ones who ultimately pay the final largest cost which is commercializing promising technologies and so you know i think that you need it needs to be balanced you you, you can't you know, the industry is big and includes a lot of players, right? It includes manufacturers, designers, tool vendors, uh, design tool vendors, et cetera, et cetera, you know, programmers. It needs to include a diversity of voices from across that landscape, but it needs to be industry-led. Um, can you get into the thing of like, you, you were saying like, let's, we're bringing back the old Semitech folks. Well, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. I mean, so, so the, the, the folks who, who, uh, helped set the roadmap and put together Semitech, you know, they're, they're still out there. They're, they, they've moved on to other positions. They're, you know, uh, vice presidents of research at universities or their special assistants to DARPA directors, right? They, they, they're all over the place. And I think that in some cases, uh, they're, they're going to get the shoulder tap and probably in many cases already have to, to help come back and, you know, go for round two. Um, NSTC is going to need roadmaps as well. That's probably going to be one of the early activities. They already participated in that for Semitech. And, you know, a lot of these guys, too, um, some of them are retired. I actually think bringing some of these guys out of retirement for a bit is is a good way to go about it because yeah. they no longer have skin in the game at a particular company, which is really valuable for doing this in a way that everybody can trust that it's above board. So speaking of hiring and, and sort of personnel, what is FAR? Why is it so awful? And um, did they end up getting other transaction authority in the bill? So far, federal acquisition regulations, I think, uh, and, and then DFAR, which is defense, uh, you know, FAR. Um, yeah, o OTA, I, as I understand it, f fully is in there as, as an option for, for commercial leverage. Um, so, so OTA is other transaction authority uh, and, and FAR, FAR, yeah, refers to federal acquisition regulations. What it basically is, is a set of templates and regulations and best practices on businesses that do business with the government and get contracts with the government. It is onerous, though many companies do conform to it. Um, and the contracting process to look into a company and make sure that they conform to FAR takes a lot of manpower. And so it puts a stress on the company trying to conform to these regulations. Most companies, especially nimble technology companies, 
aren't familiar with these regulations and didn't structure their companies to conform to them. And then also on the contracting side, you know, you, you need contractors, contracting staff and the government to go look into the companies and make sure that it's all above board. So it, it puts huge workloads in the companies and on the government. So OTA says within a few sets of, of requirements, no grants over 500 million and, and a few others, uh, you have to have non-traditional, uh, non-defense non performers on it. You can short circuit all that. So, so you don't need to conform. You don't need to do the, the, the FIR template. You, you negotiate with the government like a normal contract negotiation, setting aside all of these extra requirements that, that have, have been enshrined in law throughout the years. So it, it's not something that you would necessarily want to do in all cases, you know, long-term government contracts for, you know, whatever, uh, laundry, laundromat services for military bases probably makes perfect sense to go for a FAR approach, but uh, for, for innovative technology that needs to move fast and sometimes renegotiate contracts and in particular have negotiations about intellectual property, you, you, you going through the FAR process will mean that these contracts will never be fulfilled. Not only will companies probably not want to agree to them, but, uh, contracting staff mm. in the government is a huge bottleneck right now. And so saying now we have $52 million worth of money going out that needs to conform to FAR and have contracting staff put on it, there's just not enough government manpower to do it right now. I mean, it'll, it'll take you a decade to get the money out the door. And so having access to the other transaction authority, which removes a lot of those limitations and smooths the process over, is going to be critical for doing this in a time-sensitive way. Well, Eric, the reason we're not having laundry innovation because because of far in them because you're sticking <laughs> them on the yeah. in the far bucket um yeah let's talk about ip um getting government money is weird when it comes to who owns the uh who owns the rights to uh to what you produce isn't it it can be so uh, typically uh, ota uh will will allow companies to retain any ip that's co-developed with the government for five to eight years or something like that. So, so it's more, they don't have as long term of a, of a IP exclusivity, but, but they have it for a number of years. And, and sometimes in a, in a, you know, fast moving technology area that, that can be enough time. Um, you know, it won't necessarily be, for example, the Qualcomm model of, of, you know, IP licensing. Um, so, so, so I'll say that first. And then the other thing is that a lot of this is supposed to be of what goes on at NSTC is intended to be pre-competitive. So actual uh, creation of patents may come after the NSTC stage. Maybe I, I'll kind of say, you know, but both of those things, I, I, and I, myself, I, I don't really come from a strong intellectual property background. So this is just things I've had said to me. Uh, I, I, I work mostly with lawyers, so I absorb by osmosis things that they say, but my, my true understanding of it is, is very limited. Gotcha. Um, so Eric, what's up with packaging? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, packaging is, is. NSTC is only about half of the R&D funding. Um, so, you know, we, and, and I've, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. I've sort of been referring to R&D funding as NSTC and associated efforts. Uh, it's about half NSTC, which is supposed to be focused on the, the core manufacturing technologies and, and chips, the chips themselves and the making and designing of the chips. Um, all the other stuff is packaging. It's about half the money. And what it refers to is how all of the different chips get brought together to work in a system. So packaging is kind of open-ended um, and, and there are not always hard technical definitions of, of where packaging ends and other things begin. I, you know, Apple may take a certain approach. I, I personally think most of Apple's contributions to, to uh, 
making the the chips that go into their phones much better. You know, at least half of that is is just extremely good packaging and and how they bring together chips, different chips all onto one interposer and and what what I would call heterogeneous integration, so bringing dissimilar chips together and and co-designing them. Um but packaging is is, you know, it's bringing together the 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 memory and the processing and maybe the specialized chips if you have a specialized artificial intelligence chip, if you have a specialized who knows, someday quantum chip, bring them all together, getting them to work as a system. That's packaging. It's for, for folks who are fully aware of like the technical details too. A lot of the, when, when we talk about like building like a 50, $20 billion fab, right? That's focused on taking a silicon wafer and making a chip on that silicon wafer. But then you will take that chip and you will t- cut out the die and package that die so that that chip can be electrically connected with exactly as Eric said, the rest of the system. And so it, traditionally, uh, packaging's kind of been, it, it's not as sexy in a way because when we talk about Moore's law, when we talk about making smaller transistors, all that work is happening, you know, in the silicon on the chip uh, or on the, uh, on the die. And now we're exactly to the conversation we we're having earlier, as a lot of that has slowed down as it's gotten more expensive, there's been a lot of innovation on the packaging side because firms have essentially realized, here's a really great way to get more capabilities uh, without having to build a $20 billion fab because we can think of smarter and better ways to uh, package chips to connect them to the rest of the system. Yeah, and if, if you pull apart your laptop or your phone or, or your, your CPU, um, you know the stuff you're looking at is packaging. If you pull out your processor, that package with all the pins on the bottom of it, that's a package. That, that's not the chip. The chip lives deep inside there. If you went at it with a hacksaw, you, you could finally get to the chip, but that's all packaging. And so though those, those pins that, that allow it to electrically connect to the rest of the system, you know, we'll call those interconnects or there, there's some other terms, but the density of those interconnects and increasing the density of those interconnects is a question of packaging. And it is important for improving systems. And bringing dissimilar chips closer together with more, you know, high density interconnects is a big question of packaging that that is being increasingly addressed now because we're looking for those areas. If if Moore's law is over, which again we're not saying it is, but if Moore's law is over, we're looking for those areas we can squeeze more performance juice out of the system. So yes, that's design, but it's also packaging improvements. And you know, a, a lot of the energy loss happens in packaging, moving data back and forth. So I think. Earlier, you made this comment of, you know, NSTC is going to focus on or fund the stuff that's, let's call it a decade plus out, but the packaging R&D funding will be applicable or, or commercializable on a much shorter time frame. And I think you just hinted at it there, but like what, what specifically is the type of, uh, of R&D work in the packaging center that, that firms will be able to bring to market earlier? Yeah, I, I'll bin it into... For, for purposes of this conversation, I'll bin it into two broad categories, although maybe a third, I'll just call the extra bin where all the stuff that doesn't fit in the first two just goes. Um, bin number one is what I will call heterogeneous computing that I've already mentioned a couple of times. But, you know, we've talked about increasing, increasing specialization of chips. Those chips need to be integrated together to, to work. And there are integration standards for how to bring them together that haven't necessarily been established yet. And there are proprietary designs um, that live inside of Google that no one has any way of integrating into their system because only Google knows how, how that plugs into stuff. And we're going to see more and more design of highly specialized chips for certain applications 
and how those chips get integrated into systems is a question of heterogeneous integration. That's one huge area. And I expect that, you know, a, a significant portion of, of improvements in systems over the next 10 years are going to come from improvements in heterogeneous integration, pack, packaging, integration standards, and, you know, what, just what sorts of specialized, they call these chiplets, by the way. So, so a chip that, that, has some specialized function that's designed to be a little chunk that goes with other, you know, almost like building Legos uh, out, out of chips where I can kind of pick different different colors and then assemble a system, but but really a lot of the innovation that lives in the packaging. So that's part of it. I'll put another bin, which is stacking. And, and by the way, these aren't mutually exclusive. I can use stacking and heterogeneous integration, but 3D stacking, more dense stacking of chips. You know, I, I typically what I have is, you know, I have some kind of circuit board where my chips are laid out laterally um, I can envision going much, much denser and stacking, you know, memory cells, you know, on top and on top, on top of each other or, or processing or, you know, bringing them closer together and having higher density interconnects by going to 3D stacking. That's a big area already happening, but there's going to be more of that. Um, and things like, uh, you know, heat dissipation is a is a big question for for uh, approaches like that. And so that that's a big part of packaging, too. I'll throw that in the final third bin of just other stuff. Um Heat dissipation, you know, you all know how warm your, your cell phone gets when, when you, you know, use it a ton, right, in, in your pocket. So, so heat dissipation is a big part. Uh, environmental um, robustness. So, you know, I want, I want to put chips on the bottom of my car and, and drive it through the desert, right? Uh, there's vibration, there's temperature, there's dust, there's humidity. So better packaging for environmental uh, um, robustness. And then also... Packaging for space applications is, is going to be a huge thing as well, right? Because a lot of applications right now are in low Earth orbit where I just let devices burn out. It's not that expensive to launch things into low Earth orbit. So I typically just let devices burn out and then I just send a new one up. But when I start to look at what they call uh, cis-lunar space, so sort of between low Earth orbit and the moon, stuff I launch out there is a lot more expensive. I want it to last a long time and there's a lot of radiation out there. And so uh, vacuum and radiation tolerance and packaging is, is going to be an area as well that, that we're still at the very early tail end of that because space electronics is a growing but small industry. But I, I think that over the next maybe 15 years, but starting now, uh, that, that'll be a factor as well. What, what about uh, the sort of packaging space is in the dynamics of this sort of like industry uh, or the research to industry pipeline are different such that, um, you know, different things are, are such that first, this is like hot, not just living in the NSDC to begin with. And second, how they're going to kind of try to tweak it to make it um, better fit uh, the current realities. Yeah. So I'll, I'll say one caveat just at the beginning, which is that packaging and uh, chip design have been kept separate for quite some time. And then kind of packaging brought in at the very end of, of, a, of a product design stage that that no longer is going to be the case. And actually, NSTC and the packaging effort will need to be very closely linked and talk to each other because there will be packaging needs that will motivate chip design and vice versa. So, so number one, they'll need to be linked. But there are huge differences in the innovation pipeline for packaging, mostly that the U.S. doesn't really do much packaging at all in university. Uh, we, we, you know, even U.S. companies don't do packaging here. They do them overseas. And a big part of that is the packaging was seen as the, kind of the cheaper part of the product and mostly done by hand. And as we go to increasingly dense interconnects and smaller close integration of chips that need alignment, that's going to a more automated process. And now, which is, you know, sort of advanced packaging, which is kind of a nebulous term, but, but is gonna increasingly rely on automation for assembly. 
And so um, I think that's really the opportunity to, to bring it back to the U.S. where, you know, doing it by hand, a lot of times it's gone overseas to take advantage of low labor costs. But now when you look at a more automated packaging assembly and test, but as I was saying, uh, as we go to automation, you know, it's going to there's going to be value now in bringing it to the U.S. or Europe or, or wherever that might be, where, where there's that engineering workforce that can oversee that that um, automation capital. And, and I think that a lot of research is going to go in that. Maybe one of the, the you know, it goes to the conversation we're having on, on subsidies. It's one of the secrets, like even now, a lot of the fabs that operate in the U.S., they'll make the wafer, they'll make the dye, but those dye will be packaged overseas, right? If you And, and you know, you go look at Intel or TI, some of these firms that have some of their big manufacturing plants there, a lot of their packaging is not done here. It's exactly as you pointed out. It's done at lower cost locations because it's a very manual process overseas. And that that is one of the opportunities if we can scale up advanced advanced packaging, as you said, um, to bring it bring that production to the U.S. And and I'll, uh, there there is one thing I, I realized I left out and then kind of added at the end but didn't explain. So I say packaging, assembly, and test is a big part. So testing products that have been assembled a lot of times right now, you know that's done. You'll you'll get someone in there with little probes with a digital multimeter by hand. That, that's the history of the industry. That is going away. It's not test is not going to be done that way, but test is a critical part of packaging because when you when you plug that chip into the package, how do you know that it actually all of the little pins are communicating? How do you know that it actually is interfacing with the memory or all of the memory or there's not a bad sector, these sorts of things? Um, that's a critical part of it. Right now, a lot of it's done by hand, but but that will no longer be the case. And how you do as you go to scale up, you know, I want to 3D stack things. How do I test the interconnects in that 3D stack? They're, they're so they're hidden, you know, they're buried within chips almost. So how you do that is going to be a complicated engineering question and will be the subject and will need to be the subject of, of, um, of engineering research. So how, how might the, the packaging R&D work? Uh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about how NST might be structured and how it might take advantage of that. What would the structure of the packaging R&D center look like and how might it differ from NSTC? Yeah, so NSTC, I, I think so. So in terms of leadership structure, I, I don't really see them needing to be all that different. I, you know, some people have suggested they they be merged entirely. Um, SAA is not advocating for that, but I don't, I don't think they need to be merged entirely. Although I don't think that would be a problem. Um, I, I think the point of having packaging as this separate piece in the legislation is to just make sure the packaging isn't left out, which which is very important. I mean, I, I totally agree with that. So, so I think the structure could be the same or, or even could have the same steering committee or, or similar, at least maybe the formation of the steering committee could be based on the same selection criteria. Mm -hmm. um, but the key difference, I think, is that the NSTC will, in many cases, be able to either upgrade existing sites or leverage sort of an annex in existing sites. So, you know, it's possible that maybe, you know, some of the NSTC Intel wants to say, Okay, we're going to put an annex in one of our fabs that's called the NSTC annex, and we let people come in and use it. That that might happen, or, or Micron, or or whoever else. Um, that's not really possible for packaging because we just don't have that capacity. I mean, we 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 just don't do much packaging here in the U.S. So packaging will need to be a lot of new facilities. Um, the good news is the packaging is not expensive to do, and so even if you stood up all new facilities, you wouldn't be as expensive. The interesting thing is that it's about half the money for NSTC and half for packaging. You're going to get so much more packaging innovation for the for that price tag because chip manufacturing is insanely expensive and packaging is very cheap. 
And so even though we don't do it, as long as we spend the money in the right way, your packaging innovation will, will come. Uh, you'll get a lot more bang for your buck, I, I guess. I'll yeah, say. Eric, um, how do these numbers, like, where do these numbers come from? Uh, you know, uh, I, I uh, as, as not a, uh, not a lobbyist myself and, and having never been a Hill staffer, um, I know that the congressional negotiation process is a, is a complex and, uh, arcane beast. And so, um, how these numbers finally shake out, you know, they get a lot of input and, and, and I, I came in late to the process. I was watching from, from a classified skiff for, for most of this process, not really understanding how they were arriving at this, but mo from what I saw. Uh, there would be closed door meetings with, you know, the, the intelligence committee where they would get briefings from the intelligence community and then they would come out with numbers. What are they based on? Who's to say, uh, but like, who's, who's the super into, you know, I, I think NIST, uh, well, I, okay. I, 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 if I'm remembering correct, I think there's a West coast Senator, I'll just say, who's very, very into packaging, um, and, and really made a point that it continued to say in the legislation. Um, would it have stayed in the, that's hard to say. I'll say that I'm glad that packaging got a call out. I don't necessarily think that it would be devastating if it's money was merged with NSTC. And actually, when you look, I think starting at year three, those pools of money are merged together. And it kind of says NIST, you can, after this point, you can figure out how you want to divvy up the money yourself. Um, which I, I, I think is fine. Um, but yeah, where those numbers come from, you know, who, who can say, I, I will say that. Um, 52 billion is a lot of money for the taxpayers to give, but it's not that much money for the semiconductor industry to receive. And so there is a challenge there. Everything the semiconductor industry does is insanely expensive. You know, we, the, the 52 billion is, is appreciated, but if it's not spent in a, in a clever way, it can dry up very quickly. So I, I think that raises an interesting point is the expectation, um, that, we've called NSTC and, and maybe packaging as it's lumped in or is separate to where I believe that aside for now, um, like a public private partnership. So is there an expectation that firms will add additional money beyond what's allocated and have firms talked about what they yes. might expect to spend? So I'm sure internally that they have, but yes, and NSTC and, and especially if it's going to be self-sustaining, which is part of the idea. I mean, it, NSCC is not a five-year effort that dies. The, the, the goal is for it to continue to persist, much like IMEC has, right? And so the only way that makes sense is if it has partnerships with industry and, and maybe someday receives no government money at all. I mean, I, I think that would be the, the goal. Achieving that in five years is very ambitious. Um, but I think if you look at uh, like the Manufacturing USA Institutes, that's one model, or I think are called Manufacturing Innovation Institutes now. I think that's um, right. Yeah. But, but anyways, the Manufacturing Innovation Institutes, uh, you know, they were envisioned to have this upfront uh, uh, government funding that would, you know, taper off over time as industry would come in and fill that gap. Now, most of them have not hit that five-year runway that they were intended to, but they still show some promise. And so I, I think that NSTC is not exactly envisioned to evolve in quite the same way only because they don't know how they envision NSTC to evolve quite yet. But, but I think that looking at like a manufacturing innovation Institute model isn't the worst uh, place to start. Semitech followed a similar model, which is if I remember correctly, 
it, it was a similar five-year authorization that was 50-50 split between DARPA and the industry. Again, much more modest numbers. If I recall, I think it was a hundred million per year. So, I mean, we're in different leagues now. Yeah. But, but I do believe if I recall correctly, that at the reauthorization in the mid nineties, DARPA's contribution was either reduced or removed, but the industry, it, it, the industry it, kept funding it. it, it Yes, it, it eventually tapered off entirely and, and industry continued to fund it. And, and this was true for uh, MOSIS as well, which is a, uh, a wafer, uh, multi-project wafer program that was initially funded uh, at one point 100% by DARPA, but that tapered off over time and, and then, you know, became sustained by the community. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that will have to happen for NSTC. Uh, how the companies are approaching it isn't anything that, I haven't participated in a conversation like that at SIA yet, though I've only been here for six months. Um, but I, I'm sure there are conversations they must be having internally. Dear listener, if you made it this far, you get a gold star. Here's some masa way to take you out. Check, check, check it out. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hammer. 80 beats. Love. This war is for Satellites cook is for Chopper chopper sample You want to move on ocean down Study there How you something good Something cool So what's the chance So I find Yeah Sian Chopper